Many of you probably will not recognize the name Babe Dietrichson Zaharias. But you need to know that name. She wound up being listed as one of the, one, if not the greatest woman athlete of the 20th century. She was born in 1911 down in Port Arthur, Texas. And when she started growing up, she loved playing sports. I mean, she excelled at baseball, basketball, tennis, volleyball, swimming, cycling, track and field. I mean, she could do it all and do it incredibly well. When she finally started catching some real attention, she was interviewed by a reporter and the reporter asked, said, is there anything you don't play? And she said, yeah, dolls. Yeah, she didn't play dolls. She played sports. And she was good. So much so that in 1932, she went to the Olympics in Los Angeles. She was working in three events. There was the javelin throw, the 80-meter hurdles, and she was also in the high jump. She won gold in the first two. And in the third one, she would have won gold, but on her last jump, Rather than jumping the way she had, she ran out and jumped backwards, head first, like everybody does today. But the judges had never seen that before, and so they disqualified that jump, saying it was illegal. So she won silver instead of gold. Oh, she was amazing. When she got through with the Olympics in 32, she started playing basketball on an exhibition team. And then by 35, she'd picked up golf. It's golf where she became famous. She was great. She loved playing golf. In 1937, she was playing in the L.A. Open. It was a men's tournament. She played in the men's tournament and made the cut. Something women are still trying to do today. She was playing with a partner named George Zaharias. It's where they met. Playing in the L.A. Open, on that round, that's where she would meet her future husband. They hit it off immediately, and 11 months later, they were married. It wouldn't be until the mid-1940s that that Babe would go professional. And when she turned professional, she would win 13 tournaments in a row. In a row. She would win over 80 tournaments in her career. She won 13 tournaments. In a row. I mean, this lady was amazing. But not everybody was impressed. Because this was in the 40s, there were so many reporters who thought Babe Zaharias shouldn't be out playing golf or all these other men's sports. I want to read you what one reporter wrote. It would be much better if Babe and women like her stayed home, got themselves prettied up, And waited for the phone to ring. Babe didn't wait for the phone to ring. (laughs) She said, here I am. I'm coming in. She played. In the late 40s, she and two other people formed the LPGA. She would change women's golf forever. It was in 1953, though, that they discovered she had cancer. Colon cancer. She had to have very serious surgery. 
The doctors told her that she would never play again. But they didn't obey him. She was very honest in that when all this happened, she started going back to church. You see, she had always been raised as a good Lutheran. But in the end, she had fallen away from going to church during all these decades of all the success and the things that were going on. But she said, when you have to confront a disease, an illness like this, it leads you back to the Lord because He is the only one who can strengthen your spiritual muscle and strengthen her spirit, her spiritual life. It did. It began to strengthen that spirit, her spiritual life. She worked on her own physical being and she came back while wearing a colostomy and won the U.S. Open. She would win more tournaments. Her faith was growing. It changed the way she treated other people. You see, for so much of her career, she really had been a little braggadocious and she would come up to you and say, if you're going to compete, you know I'm going to beat you. And then she did. But now she came to other people and said, how can I help you? Something changed in that spirit. She was still competitive, working hard and winning, but there was something in that spirit. In 1955, the cancer came back. And in the end, she died in 1956. She was 45 years old. Only 45 years old. And yet she changed women's golf forever. She changed women's sport forever. She was a game changer. This morning, I want to continue on with the sermon series, Game Changers. And what we said that we're doing is we're trying to look at the fact that sport is such a part of our culture. I mean, there's no denying it. When you look at all the activities for our children, when you look at all the millions who went to college football games yesterday and pros today and baseball playoffs and golf tournaments, sport is a significant part of who we are in our culture. And so we thought, wouldn't it be fun to look at people who changed their sport and changed the world? They were game changers. But then each week to look at a biblical character who also is a game changer, Someone who gives us an example of how we, through faith, allow God to use us to be game changers. The person that I want us to look at this week is Isaiah. For truly, Isaiah was a game changer. When you talk about the prophets, there are the major prophets and the minor prophets. Isaiah is one of the major prophets, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Isaiah. Isaiah never would have dreamed in a million years that what he was about to say and what he was about to do would help to guide Israel and a Christian faith that had been yet to be born for 2,700 years. But that's exactly what has happened. Isaiah's ministry probably took place somewhere between 742 BCE and about 701. Three years before he started his ministry, we have Tiglath-Pileser, who becomes the new person, the king, the emperor, um, for the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire is ascending, and they want to spread their influence, and so Israel is afraid. 
Now you remember that Israel by now had split into two countries. You have the northern country called Israel, and then you have the southern country called Judah with Jerusalem, but they were all the people of Israel following the laws of Moses, tracing themselves back all the way to Abraham. Well, they're worried now. With Assyria getting strong, what's going to happen to them? And as we read in our scripture, in the year that King Uzziah died, we think that was probably about 742, three years after Tiglath-Pileser and the Assyrians begin to get stronger. And now Israel thinks, what do we do? What do we do? The king has died. Assyria is getting strong. Where do we align ourselves? Where do we look for help? Do we align ourselves with the Egyptians? Do we turn to the Babylonians? And Isaiah says, you turn to the Lord. You trust the Lord. You don't go to all these other countries. You trust the Lord and the Lord will show us what to do. Those were hard words and not words the people wanted to follow. In fact, we know that they begin to align themselves with other countries. And what happens in 721 is the Assyrians come and they wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel. They are carried off into captivity. They are lost. The southern kingdom of Judah, well, it survives, but it pays a heavy tribute to the Assyrians. And now they are even more afraid what's going to happen to us. And Isaiah continues to proclaim the message, trust the Lord. For he will show us what to do. I couldn't help but think you and I live in an interesting time. When you and I look at all the struggles going on around us in the world, internationally, all the things that are happening that we can't seem to control, nationally, all of our struggles, locally, we see great need. And when you look around in the world, it is easy to become anxious, afraid, depressed. Where do we turn for help? And I believe Isaiah had the word, you trust the Lord. He shows us what to do. I believe that Isaiah was a game changer because of what happened and what he chose to do. And I believe that we can too. That wherever you are, God can use you. And I want us to see what we learned from Isaiah about how to do it this morning. And I think there's three important things to see. First of all, we read how Isaiah is in the temple. He is worshiping. And it is there, it says, that the Lord's train fills the temple. It's just another way of saying Isaiah was experiencing the majesty, the wonder of Almighty God. And when he felt this presence, the Almighty God, this is the first thing he felt, was guilty. I am a man of guilty lips. I am surrounded by people of guilty lips. He felt guilt. Now, you know, I really believe many times people don't want to come to worship because they're afraid they're going to come in and confront God and feel guilty. Feel guilty about our mistakes. Feel guilty that we have not lived up to what we should have done. It is easy when you stand in the presence of God to feel inadequate and guilty, ashamed. But notice what happened to Isaiah immediately. 
It says the seraphim brought over a burning coal and touched his lips. It's supposed to symbolize, fire symbolizes purity. And so the idea is I'm going to purify your lips so that what you have to say is what I want to say and will make a difference. You and I don't come to church to confront God, to experience the the wonder of Almighty God so we can go away just feeling ashamed and guilty. We come to know God so we experience grace. And it is grace that enables us, gives us strength and peace to be game changers. I've been telling you how much I do love football. It's great fun right now. Exciting college football going on. I root for the great schools of Oklahoma 51 weeks out of the year. And I have a good time cheering for them, and I wind up cheering for the Denver Broncos and the Dallas Cowboys. I told you how much I love the Broncos. I've cheered for them for decades. And this past week, I was watching them. They've been kind of up, and they kind of started losing some. But as I was watching them, I remembered Noshan Moreno. Maybe you'll remember Noshan Moreno. He played with the Denver Broncos from 2009 through 2013. He was in the 2014 Super Bowl. He was one of Peyton Manning's favorites. But Noshan was a very interesting person. His name came from the fact that his father's nickname was Knowledge. And so they took the first part of his father's name, No. And his mother was Vyasan. And so they took her last part of her name, Sean. And so they took No and Sean and they put them together. And that's how he got his name. It sounds just like the kind of name that a 16-year-old mother and a 17-year-old father might come up with. They never got married, did not live together long. She was in no condition to be a mother. And so it was that his father took him, but he had no real job. And so they moved from shelter to shelter to shelter, quite often living on the streets. He said he remembered his favorite meal was ketchup and bread. A ketchup sandwich. That was so good. Now, life was tough growing up in the Bronx in New York. It was not a good situation. His grandmother, Mildred, was so concerned. She was doing everything she could in her power to try to help and to get custody. And finally, through the legal system, she was able to get custody when he was 12 years old. And so it was he went to live with his grandmother, who was living right off a Sandy Hook, And finally, he had stability. He started going to school, and what he discovered was he did well in school, but there are all these after-school things called sports, and he started to play them and discovered he was a heck of an athlete. So much so, he started playing high school football, and he was great, enough to attract the attention of the University of Georgia, where he got a football scholarship and went to the University of Georgia, and he excelled, And in 2009, he went into the draft, and he was chosen first round 12th overall. The Denver Broncos signed him to a $16.7 million contract. Now, what happens when you're 20 years old? And not that many years ago, you're living from shelter to shelter and on the streets, and suddenly you make $16.7 million. It was a classic story. He went out and bought himself a Rolls Royce. 
and then he stopped working so hard. And then he got hurt in a game. And then he started partying too much. And then there was the DUI. Thank goodness nobody got hurt. But it was the DUI that woke him up. The DUI that made him look at himself and say, I am letting down all of my high school coaches, my family, all of my friends. He had been raised in the church with his grandmother. He was letting down himself and God. And it was such a wake-up call to him that he decided it was time to change. He was no longer on the team. He was on the scout team. I mean, he was being known as no-show Marino. What a bust. He started working hard on the scout team. Whenever they said, all right, who wants to, to play the running back from this week's team? He always stepped up and said, here I am. Put me in. He worked so hard. And the coaches began to notice. And he got better. And by 2013, he was healthy and he was back on the team. And starting in the second game, he was the starting running back from the Denver Broncos. He would be playing that year when they went to the Super Bowl. But now that he was having his best year ever, the cameras started zooming in on Noshan, on, on Noshan Marino. And what they saw was during the playing of the national anthem, you know, we're having so many things happen during the National Anthem. During the National Anthem, they shot in on him and they saw these tears, huge tears streaming down his cheek. And he started getting teased about it and asked about it. And he said, well, that's been happening for a while this year. It's just the TV cameras never watched him before. What was happening? Well, you see, he explained... Whenever it gets still, whenever everybody gets quiet and they start to play the national anthem, he takes that moment to pray. And he thanks God that he has the opportunity to play football. He said, I stand there and I start thinking about my life, all of my life. I think about the good and the bad. I think about the times I did well. In the times that I failed, I think about my life. And then I give God thanks that I'm getting to play. I couldn't help but think. It's when you and I come into the presence of God that we do examine our life honestly in the light of God. But it's not about being ashamed and guilty. It's about coming to experience God's grace. For it's God's grace that redeems us and enables us to be game changers. So secondly, it is grace that enables us to listen to what God has to say. As soon as Isaiah experiences that gift of grace, he says, And I heard the Lord say... Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I heard the Lord say. You know, I really do believe God speaks to us all. I really do believe that God is seeking to speak to us all. But it's when you and I come to know His grace 
that it opens our eyes and our ears and gives us the ability to hear. Right now, you and I are in the middle of the Kindness Project. We try to make a commitment at the beginning of this year. We're wearing our bracelets and we'd wear them so that we're reminded every day, I'm looking, I'm trying to let God show me somebody that I can be kind to, I can do something for. You never know how it's going to be a game changer. And we do a kind thing and we move our bracelets so that we can be remembering at the end of the day, this is what God has called me to do, to use me as a game changer. But it requires us to have intentionality in listening. And I just got to say to you, I'm so proud of you. I am so proud to be a part of this family of faith because it's obvious that you take seriously listening to God and being a game changer. When I look at what we do as a family of faith, it's amazing. I think about how we went to Russia so many years ago. We have started churches and we still support Russia. And now we've been going to Honduras and we go to Alaska. We try to bless people. I look at what we did back in 1951 and starting World Neighbors around the world. I look at what we do right here in our own backyard with our mobile meals program, more than a hundred meals every weekend for decades. But you know, we've really also turned our focus recently on after school ministry. It started with Studio 222. And I look at all that we have done for those middle high kids who became high schoolers and then now they're off, some of them in college, never would have had that vision. We continue to grow and expand. I look at what we're doing by mentoring at Sequoia Middle School, where we just started with our Edmond campus, what we're doing at Rancho Village, down by our Asbury campus. We have reading buddies and math buddies and sports. We now are working with hundreds of children to give them a different vision. You make it happen. But I think about Elsa Stemma. What a special weekend for Elsa Stemma. Elsa Stemma, you remember, we started four years ago. Four years ago with a hundred kids, third to sixth grade. And we gave them instruments like French horns and trumpets and cellos and violins. And they learned how to play and be an orchestra. We've kept it growing and now it's 220 kids. It's third grade through ninth grade. The whole idea is not just to learn to play music, but to stay in school. And grades are going up and discipline problems are going down. And they're learning confidence and new values, and it's amazing. I'm not sure if all of you realize or not, but yesterday our El Sistema Orchestra got to play with the Pride of Oklahoma at halftime down at the OU football game. It was amazing. Here were our kids down on the field playing with the band. They had to get up at 4 o'clock on Saturday to catch the bus to get down and do their practicing with the band. And then we had a tailgate breakfast for them at the Wesley Foundation. Each of these students was being mentored, was assigned somebody from the band to be with them and to be talking with them. And then they got to be a part of the parade as the band plays and they head on off to the stadium. They got to go march right with the band into the stadium. I mean, it was an incredible experience. I was watching the game and you remember right at the end of the second half, the quarterback for K-State 
got hurt. It wasn't too bad, but he got hurt and he had to run to the locker room. The cameras followed him as he ran to the locker room. And as he turned up the tunnel, suddenly, as they were watching him in the back part of the screen, were all of our El Sistema kids lined up in the tunnel. I got so excited. There they are. I was so glad he got hurt. I mean, it wasn't bad. I mean, he came back and played, so I would never want him to be hurt badly. But, I mean, because he got hurt, they showed all the kids there in the tunnel ready to go. You know, they came out on the field and they played. You know, we've been teaching them how to play classical music. For this moment, they learned how to play Hawaii Five O. And they did it well. And when they got through, they're walking by and you see them high-fiving all the band members as they leave. But you know, they weren't the only ones to go to the game, 220 kids. It had been about a week before I I got an email from one of the members of our family of faith who said, Bob, I bet some parents would love to go down and see their kids. But I know how expensive it is to go to a football game. I don't see any way they could probably do that. I'd like to donate my tickets. I sit on the 50-yard line. I said, that'd be great. I mean, you don't know how much a family will appreciate that. Because I know the ones that I've talked to who would love to go, but they can't drop that kind of money on just a fun day. And so he got excited about it. And then soon he's emailing me back and saying, well, I've actually talked to another member in our family of faith. And, you know, if you would give us a week or two, we think we could raise enough money to let any family go to watch their kids who wants to go. We'll buy all the tickets. You're kidding. And so it was on Saturday. We not only had 220 kids there on Owen Field, we also had 300 parents, family, representing 146 families who went to the game who had never been before. And they were there to see their kids play and to see their kids on the Jumbotron. It was amazing. And when it was all over, one of the boys was saying to one of our sponsors as they walked away, I never knew that you could go to college to learn to play the drums. (laughs) A light bulb was going off. A new vision. What's possible? And it happens because of you. Because you listen with your heart. You hear God speak. You're a game changer. And so third, for Isaiah, he never would have dreamed that what he was doing would help to guide and bless people for 2,700 years. But when you come to the temple and worship and know the majesty of God and you experience His grace, you start to hear God speak. But be it ever to Isaiah's credit, after he heard God say, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? It was Isaiah who immediately responded, Send me, Lord. Send me, Lord. And that's what God would do. I believe God speaks to each of us wherever we are in life. I believe God gives you the opportunity to be a game changer. If you're listening, 
God speaks. But I also know God waits for you to speak up and say, Here am I, Lord. Send me. I was telling you about George and Babe Zaharias. All the exciting things that had gone on in sports until she got so sick. But you know, there was another part of their life. After they got married, Babe wanted to have a family. But it didn't happen. She had a couple of miscarriages. They finally realized that's not going to happen, so why don't we adopt? And when they went to the adoption agencies and asked to adopt, the agencies said, no. What kind of an example would you be setting for these children? The greatest athlete of the 20th, female athlete of the 20th century? No. Women don't play athletics in the 1940s. Even though you're disciplined and hardworking and so talented. They said no. It would have been easy for her to get so bitter and angry. But that's not what she did. Now what she started doing was trying to put into her schedule time to always teach children how to play golf. And then she got sick in 1953. And when she got sick with cancer and they got through with the surgery... And they told her she would never play again. I, I told you how her faith kicked in and, and she began to take care of her spirit as well as herself physically. But she also started to speak out to our country about cancer. And again, you may not remember, those of you who are too young, you may not remember that in the 1950s people didn't talk about cancer. She was speaking up and going public. I have had colon cancer. You need to have screenings regularly. She was one of those first public figures to go out and begin to talk about cancer and what do we need to do. I want to read you what she had to say. Don't think I'm kidding myself now that I'm out of the rough. Every six months I have to go back for an examination, never knowing what that examination will show, whether cancer will return or not. But until I get that bad news, I'm living life right up to the hilt. Funny thing how you have to be close to death to appreciate life. I've heard the sentence of doom, and I had my reprieve. Now I'm going to fight cancer with all I've got so that others can get that reprieve too. And then, like me, they find out that life is really worth living. I told you she had a change in spirit. Oh yeah, she embraced life. She changed her schedule so that wherever she went to play golf, she made time to go to the hospital to visit the children's cancer ward. To go to the kids to take candy or dolls or whatever she could to make them smile. She went to go see the children, whatever city she was going to. She tried to make time to now teach any children she, child she could how to play golf. She and her husband, George, they started a foundation, a foundation to work on cancer research, any kind of cancer research. But then in 1955, when the cancer came back, they knew the end was near. And so she and George started a golf foundation, and they called it a foundation for the lost children. And by that for them, they meant for children who economically would never get the opportunity to play golf, to learn the dream. 
Children who are already getting into trouble. Children who are handicapped physically or mentally. The lost children. She wanted to leave her estate for them because she wanted children to know the joy of competing in sport and that nothing was impossible. She changed women's golf. She changed women's athletics. She changed the lives of so many children. She was a game changer. And I believe God wants to use you and me. Wherever we are in life, I believe God will speak to you. If you know His presence and His grace, and you are listening, God will speak. The question is simply, will you speak up and say, Here I am, Lord. Send me. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.